BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. is the Tom Hartman program. Donald Trump is president because he committed crimes, criminally indicted by the US House of Representatives. Rick Gates, his assistant campaign manager, convicted. Paul Manafort, his campaign manager, convicted. George Papadopoulos, convicted. Mike Flynn, convicted. Michael Cohen, convicted. Roger Stone, convicted. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the post office has its own police department. Yes, it's a crime to tamper with the federal mails. It's also a crime to use the mail for fraudulent purposes. So if you can induce somebody to mail you a check and then you scam them, you've committed a postal crime, mail fraud. And sure enough, the post office's police department arrested Steve Bannon for running this giant con on Trump supporters. Increasingly, I am convinced that Donald Trump, while, yes, he's running for re-election, you know, on the long shot chance that he can actually win, and he's going to try and scam it, and he's going to try and run the same scam that George W. Bush did in 2000, when it was fairly obvious that Al Gore had won the election, and Roger Stone went down to Florida and ran this operation with guys from Tom DeLay's office, and Brett Kavanaugh and John Roberts with the so-called Brooks Brothers riot to say, stop counting the votes. And they got Fox News to promote the idea that, yeah, Bush has won and Al Gore is trying to steal the election away from him. Donald Trump is going to repeat that same game. Mark Carlin writing about that's a great piece. So increasingly, I'm thinking that what Donald Trump is actually doing with probably four-fifths of what he's doing with all the emails that I'm getting, and at least half of them, well, at least a third of them now, and on some days, two-thirds of them, are actually not from the Trump campaign. They're from super PACs affiliated with the Trump campaign. His biggest super PAC, Trump's biggest super PAC, has raised like $120 million. Well, he gets to keep that money if he loses. So, I mean, this is a giant con job going on, and it's very similar to the con job that Steve Bannon was running, which is, hey, people who support Donald Trump, send us money and we'll build a private wall. And they collected $25 million and put a good chunk of it in their own pockets, which is why they're, you know, is why Steve Bannon's in jail right now. So, I mean, this shouldn't surprise us that Steve Bannon ran a con, that Rick Manafort ran a con, that Rick Gates ran a con, that George Papadopoulos was running a con, that, you know, that Donald Trump ran a con. I mean, you know, he, he started out. His run for president was a con job. It wasn't, you know, he didn't go down the golden elevator or escalator to get himself elected president. He did it to try to get NBC to pay him more than Gwen Stefani. He was enraged when he discovered that he wasn't the most highly paid NBC reality star, that she was making $2 million a year more than he was. Michael Moore outed this in the very beginning of his last movie. So what did Trump do? He assembled around him a group of fellow grifters, Bannon, Manafort, and a bunch of foreign governments, including Russia, and they managed to squeak him into the White House. And since then, this grift has gone into overdrive. They're now giving away public lands to their campaign donors. They're giving huge no-bid contracts to their campaign donors. They're passing out massive tax breaks to their campaign donors. They're even trying to destroy the post office on behalf of their campaign donors. Are you noticing a theme here? Give us money, we'll give you what you want. 
Unless you're the people, the average people. I mean, if you're a big corporation or a billionaire, you give Trump money, he gives you what you, what, what you want. Judd Legum over at popular.info has a piece out about this trucking executive gave Trump's super PAC. Again, that's money that's going to end up in Trump's pocket. This trucking executive gave Trump's super PAC millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands or whatever it was, some huge contribution. And in exchange for that, apparently, this trucking company got millions of hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts in the post office from Louis DeJoy. Surprise, surprise. Of course, Louis DeJoy just sold for 600 million bucks his own trucking company that contracts with the post office. Although he still owns a piece of it. But the biggest and most dangerous part of the Trump con job is what President Barack Obama called out last night. I thought the Democratic Convention was absolutely brilliant. It was extraordinary. And President Barack Obama called out this con job that is the Republican Party, the modern Republican Party, the conservative movement, and Donald Trump. He said, I never expected, this is what Obama said, I never expected that my successor, that would be Trump, would embrace my vision or continue my policies. I did hope, for the sake of our country, that Donald Trump might show some interest in taking the job seriously, that he might come to feel the weight of the office and discover some reverence for the democracy that had been placed in his care. But he never did. And the consequences of that failure, President Obama said, are severe. 170,000 Americans dead, millions of jobs gone, while those on the top take more than ever. Trump has seen our worst impulses unleashed, our proud reputation around the world badly diminished, and our democratic institutions threatened like never before. I mean, he just laid it right out. And there were some just extraordinary moments from that convention. But he goes on to say, the commander-in-chief doesn't use, he's talking about Trump, doesn't use the men and women of our military who are willing to risk everything to protect our nation as political props to deploy against peaceful protesters on our own soil. In other words, he shouldn't. Right? I mean, historically, the commander-in-chief doesn't do this. But this one did. Obama said, political opponents aren't un-American just because they disagree with you. A free press isn't the enemy, but the way we hold officials accountable. Our ability to work together to solve big problems like a pandemic depends on fidelity to facts and science and logic, not just on making stuff up. None of this should be controversial. These are American principles, said President Barack Obama the last president of the United States, who was actually a president of the United States. He says, this administration has shown it will tear our democracy down if that's what it takes to win. The last president of the United States saying that the current president of the United States is running a con and, and is destroying democracy. This has never happened before in the history of this republic. So here we are. From billionaire-funded right-wing think tanks to billionaire-owned Fox News to billionaire-funded efforts to put billionaire-friendly judges on the federal courts to billionaire-funded groups like ALEC writing the very legislation that gets made into law. This whole conservative movement that Ronald Reagan started in 1980 has been one long con. It's a grift. And now the billionaire grifters have kicked this into overdrive. They're sponsoring sleazy and bizarre conspiracy theories, QAnon. They're questioning the viability of democracy. They're attacking our intelligence service and our post office and our FBI and trying to wrap themselves in the flag. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the last refuge of the scoundrel, of a person who hates America. That is what is happening with Trump and his acolytes in the Republican Party right now. So along, along these lines, you know, I guess my question, broadly speaking, and it's a pretty big umbrella, you know, number one, what did you think about the convention? You know, number two, how much longer do you think that Americans are going to continue to buy this grift? I know I've asked this question before, but it seems to never go away. This is what Elizabeth Warren had to say at the convention. She said COVID-19 was Trump's biggest test. He failed miserably. She said millions out of work, millions more trapped in cycles of poverty, millions on the brink of losing their homes, millions of restaurants and stores hanging by a thread. This crisis is bad and it didn't have to be this way. This crisis is on Donald Trump and the Republicans who enable him. On November 3rd, we hold them all accountable. 
And then she went on, you know, she loves a good plan, right? She she went on to say, I love a good plan. And Joe Biden has some really good plans. These plans reflect a central truth. Our economic system has been rigged to give bailouts to billionaires and kick dirt in the face of everyone else. She says, Joe Biden knows that a government run with integrity, competence, and heart will save lives and will save livelihoods. And we can't afford to let Donald Trump continue to endanger the lives and livelihoods of every American. Gabby Giffords gave a speech that just brought a lump to my throat. Nine years ago, she was shot in the head by a right-wing nut, you know, and I was going to call him a nutball, but the guy was trying to assassinate her. He was a right-wing assassin. By the way, 100% of all the political murders committed in the last two years in the United States committed by right-wingers. 100%. But Gabby Giffords last night, she said, confronted by paralysis and aphasia, I've responded with grit and determination. I put one foot in front of the other. I found one word and then I found another. My recovery is a daily fight, but fighting makes me stronger. Words once came easily. Today I struggle with speech, but I have not lost my voice. And then she went on to say, America needs all of us to speak out, even when you have to fight to find the words. We're at a crossroads. We can let the shooting continue or we can act. I was amazed. The convention devoted a good solid block. It seemed to me like 10 minutes. It might have been seven or eight minutes, whatever it was, to gun control. Then they devoted a solid block to climate change. There were a number of different issues that just pushed front and center. And of course, throughout the convention, the issues of racial and gender justice and, and all that sort of thing have been you know, front and center. I'm just very encouraged by this whole thing. Now, on the other hand, <laughs> the Postal Service, Louis DeJoy is negotiating with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon's company, to put uh, ATMs and post offices across the country and give them an exclusive monopoly on postal banking. This is a way of preventing Bernie Sanders' idea of post offices serving as banks for, for the millions, tens of millions of Americans who literally don't have enough money to be able to afford the fees of a regular bank. I mean, we used to have postal banking in America. They have postal banking in other countries. Well, DeJoy wants to prevent that by bringing in J.P. Morgan Chase. This is disgusting. This is part of that con that I was talking about that Reagan started. It's just, it's just absolutely incredible. One of the things that I found absolutely fascinating this morning, I was just poking around the Internet and found this story that was uh, published. Matthew Chapman wrote it. It's over at rawstory.com. The headline is, Dems can use this constitutional trick to stop Trump's judges from dismantling Biden's agenda. And you go, oh, really? How do you, how do, you do that? After all, you know, uh, Trump put basically a third of all the federal judges on the federal judiciary, Trump appointed. Because for most of Obama's presidency, Mitch McConnell refused to let his judicial nominees, including Merrick Garland for Supreme Court, go through, which was a crime, in my opinion. But, you know, here we are. So what do you do? Well, you know, I wrote about this in my book. In fact, this is why I wrote this book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. The newest one that's out literally this week is The Hidden History of Monopoly, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. Ralph Nader wrote a brilliant foreword for it. That's a fascinating take, and I've been doing a lot of media on that. But, but the Supreme Court book, the last chapter in it, you know, kind of builds up to this. The last chapter in the book is about how John Roberts, when he was working for Ronald Reagan in the Reagan Justice Department in the 1980s, he had been asked by Reagan's people to figure out a way to have the federal government ignore two Supreme Court rulings. How can we get around these two Supreme Court rulings? One was Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. It's illegal to have segregated schools. And the second was Roe v. Wade, 1973. It's illegal to ban abortion. States can no longer block women from having abortions. Reagan's people asked this young lawyer, John Roberts, how do you get around this? I mean, these are Supreme Court decisions. And Roberts wrote this uh, nearly 30-page memo, which I found, and and I I don't think anybody had ever even known that this memo existed. I mean, it it took me the better part of a year to to find this thing and kind of ferret out and dig it out of the bowels of the Justice Department. And in this memo, John Roberts says, well, Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution says, and it does say, 
that Congress can create exceptions to what the Supreme Court can rule on. In other words, Congress can pass a law, and in that law, they can say the Supreme Court may not rule on this. So if Congress wants to ban money in politics, all they have to do is pass a law banning money in politics and then say this law may not be reviewed by the Supreme Court. It's right there in the Constitution. Now, Roberts recommended that to Reagan, although he said, be very careful, because if you use this, then the Democrats will use this, and you're going to weaken the Supreme Court by doing this. So be very careful. This is in emergency break glass. And Reagan ultimately decided not to do that. No president has ever done, well, actually, two presidents have done this. Andrew Andrew Jackson did this, ignored the Supreme Court in two cases, for the the Second National Bank of America and the uh, Trail of Tears. And Abraham Lincoln ignored the Dred Scott case and said, you know, well, that's a terrible thing for Mr. Scott, but we're going to go ahead and pretend that that case was not ruled on that way by the Supreme Court. But it wasn't Congress in either case overruling the Supreme Court. What John Roberts was suggesting is that Congress can overrule the Supreme Court. I lay it all out in The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. And uh, so now this legal scholar, this guy, uh, Christopher Sprigman, writing for the New Republic, says Article 3 of the Constitution gives Congress substantial power to strip federal courts jurisdiction, a power that can be employed to rein in politicized courts and even to override judicial decisions. And he's right. And John Roberts is right. It's just never been done in any kind of consequential way. And I think it should be done. I really think it should be done. And because we need to reverse Buckley versus Vallejo and First National Bank versus Bilotti, the 76 and 78, 1976-1978 decisions that said that when billionaires or big corporations want to own a politician or even an entire political party, that's not corruption. That's free speech. Those decisions need to be reversed. That is the cancer at the core of all the problems we are facing, including the problem of Donald Trump. If it wasn't for billionaire money in politics, Trump would not be in office. And, you know, we did a lot about this during the Jerry Ford administration, after the Nixon bribery scandals, and in the Jimmy Carter administration. I mean, we passed a bunch of laws to get money out of politics. And then along came the Supreme Court and blew them up. So I'm hopeful, you know, now that you've got actual lawyers, actual law professors and legal scholars talking about this seriously and taking this seriously, I think that, you know, there's some real, real potential for the future of this country. You're listening to Tom Hartman. The Republican Party, arguably since the 70s, certainly since 1980, has been one long grift, basically a con job that Republicans and conservatives talk about individual responsibility. What they're basically saying is that, you know, minorities haven't succeeded because they failed to take individual responsibility. Let's ignore structural racism. When they talk about small government, what they're really saying is government is the only force, literally the only force that can protect communities from polluting corporations or giant banks that want to rip people off. And of course, they don't want people to be protected from that. That these code words basically are just a scam. It's fascinating to watch that. I've been watching this, you know, my whole entire life. And, and now Rick Perlstein comes along. He's got a new book out. He's the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice, a former columnist with The New Republic and Rolling Stone, a journalist and contributing writer with The Nation. His latest, he's, he's got this series of books, Nixon Land Before This, and there was another one before that, and it's called Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 through 1980. It is a doorstop. It's a massive book, but it is absolutely brilliant. Rick Perlstein, welcome to the program. So glad to have you back with us. Oh, it's so great, Tom. I love how you've kind of educated your listenership about Reaganism. You know, you bring in history into your radio stuff, and... Long-time listener, I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate a chance to do it with you. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, you are one of America's great historians. Your writing is brilliant. What prompted me to do this was that morning on Morning Joe, Scarborough had on David Frum and George Will, and they mm-hmm. were talking about, we need right. to return to conservative values of limited government and personal <laughs> responsibility. And I'm like, these are code words for BS. George Will and how does this book. play out? <laughs> Because he was helping the Reagan team prepare for the big debate with Carter in 1980. And, of course, as you know, they stole a briefing book from the Carter campaign, so they knew what he was going to say. And George Will, who was a reporter and also commented on the debate on ABC, not only didn't mention this in his role as a journalist, that, you know, they were cheating, but he actually went on TV afterwards and said that Reagan had done a great job and exactly why he had done a great job without revealing that he was literally on Team Reagan, you know, immediately comes to mind, you know, before bringing up the fact that Steve Bannon was just arrested on his boat for a straight-up con job, emptying the wallets of hard-working Americans, you know, by claiming that the money was going to go to the wall. Yeah. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah. And the reason they have to con people is... One thing that I kind of sow throughout the book is statistics showing how unpopular their policies always have been, right? In one example, was on election day. At that time, 35% of Americans agreed that social programs should be cut, right? Reagan wins, but it's not because he says social programs should be cut. It's because he basically says, I'm going to give everyone a tax cut. And then it's going to cause a miracle of the loaves and fishes. You know, these magic beans are going to stretch a beanstalk all the way to the sky, and we're going to climb to heaven. And, of course, it was all nonsense, but it worked. One of the reasons it worked was because Jimmy Carter kind of retreated and gave working-class Americans very little to vote for. You know, back in the 1700s, when these... <laughs> there you go. This divide... There you go again. This, the, When this divide between conservative and liberal became fairly evident, you know, I mean, the previous debates between Hobbes and Rousseau and then kind of Locke cutting the baby down the middle, all that stuff. Thomas Paine wanted to go visit the French Revolution, and he stayed with Edmund Burke for two weeks on his way to France to get arrested. And got so pissed off at... Yeah, it really is. And he got so pissed off at Burke that he wrote an entire book as a rebuttal of Burke. It was called The Rights of Man. Yeah. And... Burke was honest about conservatism. He came right out and said, conservatism is an embrace of aristocracy. We believe that there should be classes and orders. And then Russell Kirk in 1951 in The Conservative Mind, his opening chapter is about Burke and how there should be classes and orders within society, you know, with white men at the top and all this kind of stuff, and warned us about what would happen if women got power or minorities got power in America. And that was the book that kicked off the, you know, the modern conservative era. Why don't Republicans simply say and conservatives simply say or admit the truth? You know, we that right. you can't trust the people. We think there should right. be aristocracy and we're the aristocrats. Burke is interesting. He does say what you say he said. But I just actually recently reread Burke after finishing my book. And I read it in tandem Whoa. with the Oxford history of the French Revolution. And one mm-hmm. of the fascinating things about Burke is he's about as reliable a reporter on what was happening in France as Fox News is. There was all kinds of undercutting ah. and special pleading and trolling. It's, it's very interesting. You can hear a lot of today's Fox News rhetoric in this very snarky, trolly guy, Edmund Burke, who, yes, at least had the honesty to say, England does it right. We have a king. We have an aristocracy. It's working great. Uh, you know, things were working great in France. Uh, that was basically his version of the kind of supply side economics nonsense. They can't sell that. Right. They can't sell the idea because we're Americans. We believe in equality. We believe in freedom. You know, they call making it harder for people to join a union right to work. Right. Because they I I described this in my first book about the whole idea of taking all the labor organizers in the town and putting them in a boxcar, dropping off middle of the desert, you know, doesn't sell You know, an era of TV. So, yes, you see that over and over and over again. There's zillions of examples of the book. It's a veritable compendium of nonsense, grifting. And one of the things that's very frustrating about it is a lot of the people who fall for this were the mainstream media, right, who were very, very hard on Jimmy Carter, but very, very easy on Ronald Reagan and very easy on Falwell, who's a big character in the book. Mm-hmm. Falwell yeah. becomes a very big figure. The moral majority starts the year before he endorses Reagan lustily, and he gets to write op-eds in places like the Los Angeles Times saying, you know, Christians aren't fairly represented in government. 
we're just another pluralist group in America's rich pageant. Meanwhile, I have a pamphlet he wrote that's absolutely astonishing about nuclear war in which he reads the signs in the New Testament and in the book of Daniel and prophecy to explain very explicitly how a war is going to happen with Russia and America down to the troop movements, the number of troops and where they're moving. And then the last page says, and then basically there's going to be a nuclear explosion and won't that be a wonderful thing? <laughs> I mean, that's how crazy oh, and everybody get, that's being laundered. Everybody gets raptured. It is nuts. We're talking with Rick Perlstein, the author of Reaganland. Is there any piece of the conservative sales pitch that actually has integrity? Um, yeah. Um, wow, you stumped me. I'm, I'm usually not at a loss for words. Um, I think there are conservatives that have integrity. I think that the sales pitch is, uh, yeah, at bottom it's a con. It's a big con. Amazing. Amazing. The book is Reagan Land. You're going to want to read this book. Rick Perlstein is the author. America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Rick, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Cheers. It is so much fun to geek out on history with a fellow history geek. Well, let me pick up a couple of more things here. This is a con job. These guys are grifters. Steve Bannon just got busted for this. And by the way, he was not alone in this effort. I didn't know this. Edward Isaac Dovere is tweeting this. Chris Kobach is the general counsel for the Build the Wall pack that Steve Bannon was just arrested for being involved with as chairman. The advisory board includes Eric Prince, former Colorado Congressman Tom Tancredo, Sheriff Dave Clark, and former pitcher Kurt Schilling. So apparently these are the the grifters, the scam artists who are involved in this thing. So speaking of grifters and scam artists, now I'm not sure that the RNC has issued an official lineup or rundown or roster of people who will be speaking at the Republican Party next week. But we do know the people who have come out and said, I will, you know, I've been invited to speak. I'm going to be one of the speakers. And this is the lineup. Kid Rock, you know, a washed up rocker. Ted Nugent, another washed up rocker. You know, who wants to hear from these guys, really? Scott Baio, I don't even know who he is. Nick Sandman, he's that MAGA hat kid who stood in front of the Native American elder The uh, demon sperm doctor, yes, this doctor, she was endorsing hydroxychloroquine and endorsing Trump and all this kind of stuff. And it turns out that she's got, you know, at least one patient who says, whose family says that she killed him, et cetera. And she says that, you know, demon sperm is causing women's problems. And the MyPillow guy, he's going to speak at the Republican convention. He's now hustling a uh, new uh, extract from some kind of plant, oleander plant, that he says might cure COVID. Turns out that the extract from oleander is deadly poison. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, that's just exactly what we need, right? Lots and lots of that stuff. The Goya Beans CEO. Oh, yeah, let's get a Hispanic on here to sell some beans. I mean, you know, apparently that's all he's doing. It's, It's like, really... That couple in St. Louis, these two racist lawyers who went out in front of their mansion when the Black Lives Matter protesters marched down their street, they were on their way to some CEO or some political figure, I forget who. But in any case, they, you know, they walked by this mansion and they came out and literally pointed guns at peaceful, unarmed protesters. John Voigt, washed up actor, Diamond and Silk, James Woods, another actor whose time has long passed, And the blacks for Trump guy. Seriously. This is what's going on. And meanwhile, Rand Paul is saying, if you give people money and you make it less painful to be in a recession, we can stay in a recession longer. So all these governors, Democrat and Republican, will not have an incentive to open the economy if you soften the amount of suffering that they have created. And by the way, a big headline now today also, the Russian company that is building the aluminum plant in Kentucky that Mitch McConnell is bragging about to Kentuckians saying, hey, look at this, I got you some jobs. Turns out that company is, quote, an agent of the Kremlin. Oh, how entertaining. You know, this quote keeps coming out every couple, it seems like every three months or so it gets recycled, but it's a brilliant one. 
I've quoted it before. I, somebody, uh, AZ Atheist, uh, reposted it on Democratic Underground the other day. But it's from Thomas Paine, and it's from his pamphlet, Common Sense. And he was talking about, you know, basically the people that the British had installed as governors and rulers of the American colonies. But I think it's true of Donald Trump, if nothing or nobody else. He said, men who look upon themselves born to reign and others to obey soon grow insolent. Selected from the rest of mankind, their minds are early poisoned by importance. And the world they act in differs so materially from the world at large that they have but little opportunity of knowing its true interests. And when they succeed to the government, they frequently are the most ignorant and unfit of any throughout the dominions. Tell me that is not Donald Trump. Leo in Portland. Hey, Leo, what's on your mind today? Tom, I love that you called Trump out for what it is as a con man reality show star as a reality show star people are surprised you know when he acts obnoxious and ridiculous and i don't understand it that's the way reality show stars act that's what gets the ratings nobody watches it to see somebody act like a normal everyday person reality shows are all about creating train wrecks i mean you know right i'd love to go on record now and on the con man side of it I'd like to make the call now that Trump will never get prosecuted. I think that he's already laid all the groundwork for him to pull an Imelda Marcos and disappear in the night with all the money that he's scammed. And he's going to wind up in Russia and live in Trump Towers, Russia, or Trump Towers, Moscow, with all the money that him and his family have stolen. Yeah. You know, it's entirely possible. His wife and son both have Slovenian citizenship, in addition to U.S. citizenship. Although I don't think Trump has it, uh, he probably wouldn't have a hard time getting it if they all want to move to Slovenia. I don't know if Russia recognizes Slovenian citizenship as something that gets you a visa, but probably they would break all the rules for Donald Trump. There's no doubt in my mind, Leo. We now know that Donald Trump was negotiating Trump Tower Moscow right up to the day of the election. I mean, he was hot and heavy on this. He wanted Trump Tower Moscow, and they were basically saying, yeah, just keep, you know, stringing him along and helping him out. And, you yeah, know, he's therefore he's the president. So. For self-exile, like I said, like a, a Meldo Marco scam of stealing all the money and disappearing to, you know, fleeing to another country. And I think he's been laying the groundwork with Putin and, you know, all the money scams for so long. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right, Leo. It's going to be a real interesting time. Leo, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Meanwhile, police were called to a Planned Parenthood, the Planned Parenthood of uh, Central and Western New York, West Seneca Health. There was a man who demanded to speak to his partner who was believed to be being treated at the health center. He became a threat to the patient and staff. He was asked to leave. After leaving, he came back and he tried to get in. They wouldn't let him in. He was kicking the door. They called 911, and a police officer came out and saw that there was a Black Lives Matter sign in the window of the Planned Parenthood office and started berating the staff of Planned Parenthood for supporting Black Lives Matter and then refused to deal with this guy who was threatening his wife or spouse or partner or whatever she was who was in the clinic. This is where we're at. This is what Trump has brought us to in 2020. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. People yelling obscenity at total strangers. People acting in psychopathic ways. It's bizarre. They're imitating Trump. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. 
Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. On the line with us is our old buddy Susie Turnbull, the former deputy chair of the DNC, former Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor of Maryland, when Ben Jealous was the nominee for governor. Democrats.org is the website. Susie W. Turnbull, T-U-R-N-B-U-L-L, is her Twitter handle. And Susie, it's been a while since we talked. It's great to have you back on. I'm curious your thoughts on the second time, I believe, that we've had a woman as VP on a Democratic ticket, the role of women in this party. And this election. Women are right there. We're front and center. Senators, House of Delegates, and legislators across the country. We have taken so many steps in the last few years, and a whole bunch of them are caused by the fact that Donald Trump's president. It has really, since the Women's March in 2017 on January 21st, You've seen this energy that has just grown everything, and I'm excited mm. about it. The Me Too movement also seems to, in some ways, have come out of America putting a, or Russia, <laughs> pick your meme, putting a misogynistic rapist in the White House. But it has kind of settled under the event horizon in the last year. Do you think that that's because it has achieved its purpose that to a large extent or even to, a, to an extent that the public has been sensitized, workplaces are changing, et cetera, et cetera? Or is it that just this crisis of democracy has overshadowed it? It seems to me like we're making real progress. I guess that's the bottom line of what I'm asking. Are we? Yeah, I, th I think we're making real, real progress. And I think it's because, obviously, women have always known you can, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. And you can manage different things. I think people stand up now in the workplace in ways that they didn't before for pay equity. Things that just were acceptable years ago aren't going to be acceptable anymore. I think the other thing, and Jill Biden really demonstrated this last night, I think, is there is such a hunger right now for some normalcy and some kindness and humility, which are all things that can also be strength. And all of us, mm -hmm. Michelle Obama has, has laid this out really well. Our lives are depending on this. Our lives are at risk. I mean, the reason I miss Portland is I have two grandchildren who live in Portland. And, oh, wow. um, yeah, and I live on the other coast. One of my grandchildren was born last November. She was two months old the last time I saw her. And I'm a lucky one. I'm a lucky one because I have the ability to do FaceTime and, and other things. And other people don't have some of the abilities things that I have. And I, you look at it and everybody who I talk to, anyone you see, people want this change so drastically, so dramatically, because our lives do depend on it. You know, there are a few women elected officials in GOP, but they are few and far between. I said earlier in the program, if you want to see the face of the future of the Democratic Party, it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in my opinion. 
I'm curious but what you also, would say. But it's also Alyssa Slotkin and it's Abby Bamberger and it's, I mean, it is all oh, yeah. of these, all of these. Rashida Tlaib. All of these. Yes. And, and yes. And I was on a call last night with, um, I think last night for Women for Biden, like a pre-call with mm. um, the governor of New Mexico, who is a hoot. And she's speaking tonight at the convention. And if you look at how New Mexico has done pretty well and has been managed well, and you look at Michigan with Gretchen Whitmer and how Michigan has handled the pandemic well, women not only can legislate, but they can govern. And I think that's so, a step. You have run for public office. You were the former deputy chair of the DNC. What's your advice? I was going to say to women, but I would say to anybody who wants to actually get involved in the Democratic Party and help make change happen in America. Where do you start? Okay. You start at the local level. You start right in your community. You find the organizations like Moms Demand Action, if that's your issue, environmental groups. You also go straight to the campaign. You go straight to JoeBiden.com and sign up for events in your area. You can find them. You can make phone calls virtually. You can do social media. You can do online organizing. All of those things are possible. And Great stuff. Susie Turnbull, former deputy chair of the DNC and uh, Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor of Maryland. Hang on just a second, Susie. You're listening to the Tom Hartman okay. Program. Democrats.org and Susie W. Turnbull is her Twitter handle. Susie, thank you so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you again. Great. You too. Donald Trump came out and announced that the U.S. and the United Arab Emirates have come to a peace deal. He's, you know, clearly trying to get the Nobel Prize that Jimmy Carter got <laughs> around this. But there's some weird stuff going on here. And when it comes to issues around the Middle East, my go-to source is the author of Kingdom of the Unjust behind the U.S.-Saudi connection, Medea Benjamin. She's also the co-founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange, codepink.org, globalexchange.org, and can be tweeted at Medea Benjamin. And Medea is, sure enough, on the line with us right now. Medea, welcome back to the program. Tell us what this so-called peace deal is. Well, it's not going to bring peace to the Palestinians, that's for sure. It is a boost for Trump and that and let's recognize that this peace deal was announced here in the United States in Washington DC, not in the Middle East. And it's a boost for Netanyahu and also for the head of the United Arab Emirates. It's a formal recognition that Israel and the Emirates have already had a relationship for quite a while. But it goes against the whole idea that the Arab states were not going to recognize Israel until Israel gave equality to the Palestinians. So the ones that were, are really the worst off in this are the Palestinians. So, you know, when Trump first announced this and Jared Kushner is out now saying, oh, Saudi Arabia is next. I remember when that first happened, thinking, A, basically you've got two right-wing governments cooking up a deal. That doesn't seem so weird. But B, I read some news reports that the leader of the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, was Sheikh Mohammed. I don't recall his name, but but basically that he or somebody... Thank you. Mohammed bin Sayed, you know, came out and said, no, this is not a formal peace deal. This is not normalized relations. This is simply... We're simply agreeing to talk, basically, which they've been doing all along. There really, there was no there there. Was that an overstatement or a misstatement? Well, there is a there there in terms of trade agreements, and the Emirates want to buy more and more sophisticated weapons from the United States and from Israel. So this helps mm-hmm. in that regard. They've been using those weapons in the war in Yemen. And they've been using those weapons in Libya as well to support the Haftar rebellion that is against the group that has been recognized by the United Nations. And they also keep a lid on their own people. It's interesting that they've made it basically illegal for their own people to come out against this agreement. And then we have to put it, Tom, of course, in the context of Iran, because 
it's hard to understand why they would want to work together if you don't understand the enemy of my enemy is my friend concept. And that is one of the driving forces of this agreement. You and I had this conversation, uh, gee, it seems like it was a year ago, about how the Middle East is basically split into setting aside Israel, that the Arab Middle East or the Muslim Middle East, to include Iran, is split into Sunni and Shiite factions. And if you don't get that, then a lot of other things just don't make sense. And when you do get that, everything falls into place, whether it's Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan or whatever it may be. Can you recap that real quickly and tell us how that split in Islam now played out politically across the region is being played essentially by Netanyahu. It seems to me like he's aligning himself with the Sunnis is the bottom line here. He's aligning himself with the Sunnis and Iran is the Shia country. But I think it's dangerous to speak just in those terms, Tom, because there are a lot of nuances to all of that. You have Qatar, which is a Sunni Gulf state, which is now an enemy of the Sunni Saudis and of the Emirates as well. So there's a number of other things in play. You get Bahrain, which is a Sunni-controlled country that has majority Shia, and they are seen as the ones who are most likely to sign on with Israel next. I would put it more in terms of these Arab countries that are kingdoms, that are dictatorships, that want to keep their own people down. If you look at Bahrain, for example, they need U.S. weapons to repress their own people who have tried to rise up unsuccessfully. So, yes, there is the Sunni-Shia split involved, but there's also interests of right-wing repressive governments that want to keep a lid on power and are looking out for their own interests. Back in the early years of the Obama administration, and I'm sure you know the year, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't off the top of my head, but we had the so-called Arab Spring, you know, that started with this street vendor setting himself afire in Tunisia, and it spread across the region and toppled the government in Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. There was a lot of hope that that was a democracy movement, a small-d democracy movement, and that democracy could be flowering in the Middle East. What has happened to that? Yes, it goes back to 2011, and it was a very exciting time. Tunisia is probably the only successful example of having overthrown a dictatorship and having a democratic government in place now. But for the rest of the Arab world, they were either unsuccessful, crushed, like in the case of Bahrain, by Saudi tanks provided by the United States, or in the case of Egypt, where there was a coup that overthrew the democratically elected government of the Muslim Brotherhood that many Western countries did not want to deal with. And it shows the hypocrisy of wanting democracy only if the people you want are elected in that democracy. So it has led to a lot of bloodshed without a lot of positive results. But it does show that there is a movement of people power, like you saw in Lebanon even before this blast happened, that there are people all over the Middle East who are yearning for more representative governments, and their efforts will ebb and flow as time allows. And I think we will see, in the case of Lebanon, perhaps some real change coming now because people are so angry with a government that continues to fail to provide for people's needs. But that is the same in so much of the Arab countries. So we haven't seen the end of democratic uprisings. Yeah. To what extent is all this being fueled by oil wealth versus other considerations? Well, oil wealth and then uh, financial wealth, there's big banks in the Emirates and I think the considerations also revolve around the issue of weapons. Yeah, yeah. It's a remarkable time, and I, I think that we take our eye off the Middle East at our own peril. Medea Benjamin, author of Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. If you haven't read this book, you need to get a copy of it now. Codepink.org, globalexchange.org. Medea, thanks so much for dropping by. Thanks for having me My pleasure, always. Great talking to you. This is the Tom Hartman Program.
It's the Town Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Medea Benjamin's book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. And this is from the introduction. Through the women-led peace organization Code Pink, which I co-founded with Jody Evans after the 9-11 attacks, I have spent much of the last decade standing up against U.S. military intervention in the Middle East and supporting local democracy activists. I traveled many times to the region, listening to human rights activists, marching with them in the streets, dodging tear gas and bullets, and getting beaten up and deported by government thugs. I have seen firsthand the deadly effects of U.S. foreign policies. The 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq destroyed the lives of millions, including many of my dear friends, and unleashed the sectarian hatred that later gave birth to the Islamic State. I recall a conversation with my Iraqi colleague Yanar Mohammed, daughter of a Shiite father and a Sunni mother, and founder of the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq. When I asked her what was the most notable legacy of the U.S. invasion of her country, she gave the chilling response, we, Sunnis and Shia, learned to hate each other. In another part of the Middle East, U.S. military support for Israel has wreaked havoc on the lives of Palestinians and aroused the ire of people throughout the region. Continuous U.S. military interventions, drone warfare in Yemen, overthrowing Muammar Gaddafi in Libya to funneling an endless stream of weapons into the region have unleashed new levels of violence. But the United States is not the only nation whose massive footprint has been trampling on the lives of people in the Middle East. The other nation is Saudi Arabia, an oppressive monarchy that denies human rights to its own people and exports extremism around the world. It also happens to be the closest U.S. ally in the Arab world. During the 1980s and 1990s, I met intolerant and violent young men in Pakistan and Afghanistan who were trained to hate Westerners in Saudi schools. In 2001, I saw my own nation convulsed by an attack on September 11th that was perpetrated mostly by Saudis. Not hard to connect the dots behind the spread of the Saudi intolerant ideology of Wahhabism, the creation of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and the attacks in New York, Paris, Brussels, and San Bernardino. You can also connect the dots between Saudi Arabia and the failure of some of the historic uprisings associated with the Arab Spring, since the Saudi monarchy did not want calls for democracy to threaten its own grip on power. I was in Bahrain after Saudi tanks crushed the inspiring grassroots encampment in Pearl Square, where tens of thousands had gathered day after day to demand democracy. I will never forget the excitement of being in Tahrir Square during the Egyptian Revolution and watching a gasp. Uh, gassed as a military coup backed by the Saudis put some 40,000 activists behind bars. In Yemen, the Saudis took a direct military role in that nation's internal conflict with a ruthless bombing campaign. When I travel overseas, people, people often ask me why Saudi Arabia, a country that is so repressive internally and overseas, is such a close ally to the United States. Iranian friends want to know why the U.S. government is so outspoken about human rights violations in Iran, but silent about the worst abuses in the Saudi kingdom. Yemenis ask why my government supplies weapons to the very nation, Saudi Arabia, that bombed their schools and hospitals. Saudi women ask why the United States, which professes great democratic values, props up a regime that treats women as second-class citizens. The easy answer is oil, weapon sales, and other business interests. Oil has formed the basis for U.S.-Saudi ties. The kingdom has become the largest purchaser of American weapons in the world, and hundreds of billions of Saudi petrodollars help shore up the U.S. economy. But there's another reason, perhaps more critical than any of the others. The American people have not demanded an end to this dysfunctional, toxic relationship. Why? In part, because the American people know so little about it. Even American parts of a peace movement know virtually nothing about the kingdom. The Saudi press is muzzled, foreign journalists are strictly monitored, and only tourists visiting for religious purposes are allowed into the country. Add to that a Saudi lobby that lines the pockets of U.S. think tanks, such as the Middle East Institute, Ivy League universities such as Harvard and Yale, and influential institutions from the Clinton Foundation to the Carter Center. This checkbook diplomacy helps put a happy face on the abusive monarchy and silences its critics. We have a lot to uncover. This book is meant to be a primer, giving readers a basic understanding of how the kingdom holds on to power internally and tries to influence the outside world. It looks at the founding of the Saudi state, 
the treatment of dissidents, religious minorities, women and migrant workers, the spread of Wahhabism, the kingdom's relationship with the West and its role in the region, and what the future might hold. As we delve into the inner workings of this dystopian regime, don't mistake criticism of Saudi Arabia for Islamophobia. This book is not a critique of Islam, but a critique of three intertwining factors that have shaped the Saudi nation. The extremist interpretation of Sunni Islam, known as Wahhabism, the appropriation of the Saudi state by one family, and Western support for this dynasty. Criticizing Saudi Arabia should not be equated with support for Saudi's nemesis, uh, Iran. The Iranian government is guilty of some of the same abuses as the Saudis. Kingdom of the Unjust. Coming up on The Science Revolution, Noah Greenwald from the Center for Biological Diversity is here on Trump's latest actions to weaken the Endangered Species Act. You know, as we destroy the wild, we destroy ourselves. Dr. Justin A. Frank, MD, drops by and says it is terrifying to have a president who is psychotic and explains why Trump hates anyone who is loved. Former Assistant Secretary for Health under Obama, Dr. Howard Koh, tells us how Biden will handle this pandemic we're in. And lastly, in geeky science, we find out how our bones are made of stars. The Science Revolution, wherever fine podcasts are available. And welcome back. Jenny in Lebanon, Oregon. Hey, Jenny, what's on your mind today? Um, I watched the convention. I've watched it every night. And I would have been thrilled about the emphasis on global warming. But unfortunately, earlier during the week, the plank for getting rid of the fossil fuel subsidies was dropped mm. from the platform. I know. There were, there were a number of things that were dropped from the platform. The platform is... You know, it's an aspirational statement. There are some holes in this platform this year. It doesn't matter, Jenny. There has never been an administration in the history, uh, at least in my lifetime, where they use the platform as a blueprint for anything. The platform is basically their tool for getting elected. So I would just let go of that. Don't worry about it. The day that Joe Biden is sworn in as president, that's when the work begins. And we have to convince him that, you know, we need a Green New Deal. Ann in Seattle. Hey, Ann, what's up? You talked about sanity. For me, what I've been faced with with the virus and all that, it's just all insanity. It evokes just craziness that everything is equated to money. Uh, When you think about it, there are 8 billion of us on the world, and there's people like Bezos. His assets are one. $145 $145 billion. and there are the 10% that equate to all of that. I don't get it. Why can't we just all have what we need? We can have it, all of us, immigrants, refugees, everyone can have what they need. We used to have guardrails. We used to have, you know, when taxes are above 50%, it discourages business owners and business, you know, and investors from basically stealing money from workers. Reagan undid that. He dropped our tax rate below 50%. And boom, suddenly rich people started getting massively more rich. We used to have rules that prevented monopolies from forming. This is my latest book. We used to have laws against monopoly in the United States and corporations couldn't get too big and couldn't get too corrupt and couldn't get too powerful. And now they are. Because in 1983, Ronald Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Clayton Antitrust Act and the Antitrust Act of 1956. And no president has started enforcing those laws since then, because frankly, I think they're afraid of these big corporations that Reagan unleashed. He let them get so giant. And you're absolutely right. Now there's this massive amount of wealth being held in a very, very small number of very private hands. John in Petersburg, Illinois. Hey, John, what's up? What do you think will happen if Mr. Biden gets elected, how the changes will be? Well, if we simply were to return to sanity, I would be all in favor of that. But, you know, everything that I'm hearing about moving in a very progressive direction, I find very encouraging. I would love to think that a Biden administration, a Biden-Harris administration, would be the second coming of FDR. I'm holding my breath. I've hoped for that with previous Democratic presidents and didn't quite get it. But if this is enough of a blowout, if this is enough of a landslide, and if enough of us get active, that's what we could end up with. John, thanks for the call. Tim in Redding, California. Hey, Tim, what's up? 
I urge all of your listeners to contact their local postmaster general, file a complaint about Mr. DeJoy, Trump's crony, and with the board of directors and ask the postmaster general local to put in very stern words and a demand that they fire the board of governors has the right to fire mr DeJoy and reverse everything he has enacted so that we can have a safe and a better post office system. Tim, your, your local yeah. postmaster general does not have that kind of power, to the best of my knowledge. The people you want to be talking to are Republican members of the House and Senate. And put the fear of God in them, you know, electorally speaking, that uh, this is going to be a blowout if they don't do something. And they got to do something fast. Thanks so much for being with us today. By the way, if you want to call your Republican member of Congress, 202-224-3121. And in the meantime, get out there, get active, tag your it. Democracy depends on you this year. It really does. Be good to yourself and people. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 